electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's essential morning show. PCR 2. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. Today, one of our best conversations from 2022, billionaire and private equity legend, Carlyle Group co-founder David Rubenstein. I think the greatest fortunes are made when people go against conventional wisdom. We're exploring the big bets and smart moves that have paid off for Rubenstein and the brand name managers he spoke to for his book, How to Invest. What about habits of successful investors? Yes, they're workaholics. There's nobody (laughs) nine to five just kind of coming in late, leaving early. Plus, where he looks for innovation. It isn't people in their 70s who say, let's go into personal computers. It's people in their 20s that really make trends happen. And right now, it's the crypto people. And since we dug into the archives of the year that was, maybe where we shouldn't. I interviewed somebody the other day, Sam Bankman-Fried, who you probably have interviewed as well. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. It is Tuesday, December 27th. Hope you had a happy Boxing Day. Squawk Pod begins right after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Today, we're bringing you a conversation with Wall Street legend and private equity pioneer David Rubenstein. Rubenstein founded the Carlyle Group in 1987, which manages more than hundreds of billions of dollars around the globe. Rubenstein's enthusiasm for U.S. history is almost as impressive as his investing. He owns an original copy of the Declaration of Independence, and his philanthropy has transformed restoration projects of the Washington Monument and the Dome of the U.S. Capitol. And Rubenstein has shared money lessons he's learned from others in his recent book called How to Invest, Masters on the Craft, featuring one-on-one interviews with the likes of BlackRock CEO Larry Fink, Duquesne's Stanley Druckenmiller, J.P. Morgan's Mary Callahan Erdos, hedge funder John Paulson, and many, many more. 
In this conversation with CNBC's Becky Quick and Melissa Lee, David Rubenstein weighs in on the economy, the Federal Reserve, management at the firm he founded, Carlyle, and an investor that he'd interviewed who has become notorious since this was recorded, Sam Bankman-Fried. From September 2022, this is David Rubenstein on Squawk Box. Our Becky Quick starts things off with what Rubenstein has learned from some of the world's most successful investors. These are all people we know pretty well, too. But, David, I think this is particularly interesting to have you speaking to these investors because you do this for a living and you do it pretty well. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I had a chance to meet with these people over the course of the last year or so, and some of the interviews had to be done virtually because of COVID. And I know a lot of them, and I've done some work with them, but uh, I had the chance to go back and talk about their backgrounds with them, what made them tick, and try to figure out what it is that makes somebody a great investor versus an average investor. What did you find? Well, uh, they are generally from nice families. They are not from the poverty-stricken families. They tend to not be Horatio Alger stories. They tend to come from middle-class families, good in math, pretty good students, uh, obviously like to read, like to be in control, like to make the final decision, and they go against conventional wisdom. They're mm-hmm. really willing to go against conventional wisdom, which is what makes them great, because if you went with conventional wisdom, you'd presumably be like everybody else. So going against conventional wisdom, what are some examples of that? Maybe where they zigged, where everybody else sagged that put them in the well, position. John Paulson made a famous trade where he kind of went against what a lot of people thought was possible to do with the big mortgage uh, trade, a short, and he made roughly $20 billion on that. That's unusual. Um, Mike Novogratz got into crypto very early when people thought that was terrible. He made a lot of money in that. It's obviously come down, but he still made a lot of money and still holds a lot of crypto. Um, so those are good examples of people going against conventional wisdom. What, what's an example where you went against conventional wisdom and it served you well? Well, um, I started a private equity firm in Washington, D.C. People said you can't start a private equity firm in Washington because Washington is the, a government city. And I uh, made it work uh, with the help of a lot of others. What, what's the secret if you're investing in Washington? You know, if you're not following the lobbyist, what, what does make the difference? Why is it good to be there? Well, in Washington, we, well, because we started in Washington, we were able to say correctly, I think we understand companies heavily affected by government, so aerospace defense companies or telecommunications companies, maybe we had a better understanding of those than people maybe in New York did. At least that's what we said, and I think it was probably true. What about habits of successful investors? Anything all of these people have in common? Yes, they're workaholics. Um, there's nobody... <laughs> nine to five, just uh, kind of coming in late, leaving early. No, these are workaholics. And for these people, investing is not work, it's pleasure. Um, these people love what they're doing, and if they weren't making the, lot of, the enormous amounts of money that they were, they're making, they'd still do it. This is not something that they really, at this point, need the money for. Uh, when you're worth $10 billion or $20 billion, you don't need to go in and, and, and work this hard, but they do because they love it. Um, you mentioned going against the grain, going against conventional wisdom. What do you think the conventional wisdom is uh, today in this economic backdrop? And what would going against the grain be in your view? Well, the conventional wisdom today, and remember, John Kenneth Galbraith famously once said, uh, conventional wisdom is almost always wrong. But the conventional wisdom today is that we're probably teetering near a recession. We might go into one, we might not. The Fed will increase interest rates by another 150 to 200 basis points between, between now and the end of the year and that probably you should uh, be nervous about the equity upside. There's not likely to be a lot of equity upside in technology stocks or crypto or things like that. That would be the conventional wisdom. So if you're now bullish on crypto or you're bullish on technology, uh, now's the time to get in, and maybe a year from now you'll look very smart. Are you? 
bullish on crypto or technology? I am bullish in the sense that I think the greatest fortunes are made when people go against conventional wisdom. Now, who knows where crypto is going to be, but right now crypto has been beaten down dramatically. Probably if you go into this, and not just crypto itself, but uh, I've invested personally in the uh, uh, companies that surround the industry, not just the cryptocurrencies themselves, but companies that service the industry. You mean and like I the Coinbase's? Those type of companies. They, they have not actually um, done that well lately. They've been hurt by crypto uh, decline. But in time, I think the industry is not going away. Members of Congress are not going to push to regulate this industry unduly, in my view. Uh, the crypto uh, constituency is very strong in Congress. They tend to be very Republican, very libertarian, and very willing to spend money on lobbying. I interviewed somebody the other day, Sam Bankman-Fried, who you probably have interviewed as well. And, you know, he spends a fair amount of time in Washington, puts a fair amount of money into political uh, contributions. And I, I just think the industry is not likely to uh, be soft uh, in terms of its uh, dealing with members of Congress. They're going to be fairly aggressive. And I think members of Congress are probably going to react by not pushing the regulators to do more than they're already doing. Is that the secret to investing in Washington, though, just following the lobbying dollars, following where, I mean, is cash king in a situation where you're aggressive, you're aggressive well, as an industry? That's not the only thing. Take, take aerospace defense. Uh, the defense budget, people have been saying for the last 25 or 30 years, is too high. But it keeps going up, and probably it's a pretty good bet that it's probably going to keep going up. Sam Bankman-Fried scooped up a lot of uh, companies during this deep, deep crypto winter. Were you along for the ride? Was that, was that an opportunity that you saw? I, I'm not an investor in the things that he did, but he did okay. put a lot of money in, called by some the J.P. Morgan of the crypto world, right. because he put a lot of money in. Some of those bets, he says, won't probably pay off, but some will. And he was trying to shore up the industry a bit, and I think he did a pretty good job in it. Yeah. So what are you, so the kinds of companies, when did you invest? I've invested in a company called Paxos, for example. Mm -hmm. Paxos is a company that uh, services the industry, and I've done this through my family office, not through Carlisle. Um, and, and all the investments in my family office are cleared by Carlisle uh, to make sure there's no conflicts. But um, I, I think the industry is not going away, in part because young people tend to have the, the, the kind of intelligence and, and energy to kind of get trends started. So it isn't people in their 70s who say, let's go into personal computers. It's not people in their 70s who say smartphones are really going to be the thing of the future. It's people in their 20s that really make trends happen. And right now, it's the crypto people who tend to be in their 20s and 30s who are really moving this forward. Now, I recognize the challenges of crypto, and I recognize all the, the, the questions about it. But I do think that some of the blockchain-related investments and things associated with crypto are likely to be with us for quite some time. David, let's talk about Carlisle, Kyusung Lee, uh, just stepping down. He was one of two gentlemen, uh, along with Glenn Youngkun, who you and the other founders at Carlisle looked at and said, okay, this is the future. These will be the CEOs of the company. Um, I, I guess it speaks to how difficult it is to build something, build private equity, and be able to hand it off to the next generation. What, what happened? Well, Glenn Youngkin uh, left to become governor of, uh, of Virginia, and maybe now he'll be president of the United States someday. Who knows? Um, so uh, I would say uh, Kyusung Lee, I also recruited. I recruited Glenn uh, earlier. Uh, Sung is a very smart person, very high IQ, and he did a really good job in the, five, in the several years he was the sole CEO. Uh, the board unanimously decided that we would like to go in a slightly different direction, and uh, therefore we're going to go in a, that different direction. Bill Conway, who started the firm with me, is now the interim CEO, and he's really good, and he could do it as long as he wants, but we will make a decision soon on a permanent new uh, CEO. What's the different direction? What's different? Well, we're going to make sure that uh, many people in the firm uh, uh, continue the culture that we've built. 
we, we really have a certain culture that we've started from the beginning, and we want to continue that culture. And I, I think uh, the firm is in pretty good shape. Our numbers last quarter were very good, and we have no uh, you know, uh, challenges that are going to make us um, be nervous about the future. We're, we're in pretty good shape, and I think Bill is a very, very good steward for this period of time. So uh, I like Q. I think he's a very smart guy. I wish I had his IQ, uh, but I think uh, he'll be a force in the private equity investment world for quite some time. What, what's different about the Carlisle culture that you spoke to? What's Carlisle culture is a very collaborative culture. It's one that people work together quite collaboratively over the years. We often had co-heads and things. We, we, we tend to like to have what we call a one Carlisle culture. People work together. And uh, that's the culture that I, we, we've uh, started from the beginning, and we want to continue that culture. And I wouldn't say we didn't have it under Q, but I would say that's something that's very important to us. And I think the, the next CEO, or it could be co-CEOs, I don't know yet, we haven't made a decision, uh, we'll, uh, we'll probably continue that culture. One of 2022's key stories has been the response of the U.S. Federal Reserve to record high price inflation. Fed Chair Jay Powell has defended the central bank's aggressive policy of slow and steady increases of the benchmark Fed funds rate at monthly comments following meetings of the Fed's rate-setting committee and at the annual summer retreat of central bankers in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. There will very likely be some softening of labor market conditions. While higher interest rates, slower growth, and softer labor market conditions will bring down inflation, they will also bring some pain to households and businesses. These are the unfortunate costs of reducing inflation. But a failure to restore price stability would mean far greater pain. In this Squawk Box interview, recorded in September of this year, Carlyle Group co-founder David Rubenstein responds to the Fed's interest rate hikes, as well as a few other topics, the U.S. relationship with China and other economies around the world, even sports. And no, he's probably not buying a team anytime soon. Let's get back to David Rubenstein with Becky Quick and Melissa Lee. Carlisle Group co-founder and co-chairman David Rubenstein. He has a new book. It's out next month. It's called How to Invest, Masters on the Craft, where he interviewed lots of very well-known investors. But David, we've got you here today. So we're going to interview you and talk about what you see happening in the markets right now. Okay. Well, clearly the markets have been affected by the Fed's uh, statements at, at, uh, in Wyoming. Uh, I think the market was anticipating that the Fed might give some idea that maybe next year they would reduce interest rates beginning next year. Yeah. I think uh, Jay Powell's statements in, uh, in Wyoming pretty much indicated that for the time being, we don't expect any cut in interest rates. So you can expect an increase in interest rates over the next uh, couple months, probably another 50 basis points in each of the next several meetings of the FOMC. Probably no cut early next year, but probably no big increase either. And I think the markets were depressed by that because like, the markets were anticipating maybe that next year he would say early on we might reverse what we're doing, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Expecting the Fed to come to the rescue once again, right. where you see these things touch down. We, we hear this story this morning, Chengdu, a, a city of 21 million people in China, shutting down because of 700 COVID cases there. This is an industrial city where you have Foxconn operating. You've got Intel, lots of big multinational companies, and a lot of um, manufacturing that's taking place. And I think that this has got to be a pretty big jolt to the markets when you think about these lockdowns continuing, because it's the supply issues that have been causing all of these problems with inflation, not, not, not demand. When the market gets an idea in its head, it runs with it for at least a couple of days. And the market <laughs> right now is saying China is slowing down and Chengdu uh, lockdown is uh, uh, emblematic of that. And therefore, I think the market is going to overreact, as it often does, to this kind of news. Yes, they've had lockdowns before. The Chinese economy doesn't completely collapse. 
Um, China has been able to do things that we haven't been able to do to stop the spread of COVID, but this is not going to be helpful to the Chinese economy, but it's not going to make the Chinese economy itself go into recession. No, but I, I'm thinking of it from the broader supply chain issue. I mean, the big problem that we yeah. have with inflation, at least a, a large part of it, is because of these supply chain issues around the globe. It's, it, it's not a situation where, you know, demand is the problem. The Fed has this blunt instrument where they can beat down demand. We can't really fix the supply chains. And when you realize that the supply chains may not be getting better in the near future, that it, could be a problem, It's a too. challenge, there's no doubt, but I, I suspect that tomorrow there'll be some positive news out of China, and all of a sudden the markets might react differently. So you can't get too upset by one piece of news out of China any given day, because any given day there's going to be so many different things happening in China. Generally, the markets are feeling uh, the Fed is serious about inflation and serious about getting it down, and therefore they're going to keep interest rates high, and as a result, uh, probably economic growth will be slower than people would like. But it's not clear that we're going into recession. Uh, right now, it's likely that the third quarter numbers will show positive economic growth. So we had negative growth for the first two quarters. I think our indications are probably around 1 to 1.5% uh, GDP growth in the third quarter. And that that's the case, it might reduce some of the recession, recession fears that are now in the market. How are you viewing China right now, um, just even in terms of the geopolitical dynamic, the political risks of doing business in China? As I understand it, your, your sixth Asia fund ratcheted down its exposure specifically to China. That was over the summer, you told investors that. So what has changed now? Has things gotten worse? Well, there's no doubt that uh, China is a more complicated place in which to invest than it was a year or two ago. And that probably will continue for a while because of the kind of Chengdu factors, but also uh, the regulatory factors. They will probably ease up in time. And as you know, the regulators are, I think, making progress in getting the Chinese companies to be not delisted in the United States. That's progress. And I, I do think that some of the large companies that are waiting for their IPOs to occur, let's say, like uh, ByteDance, are probably going to next year be able to do something more positive in terms of uh, liquefying some of the investments that have already been made. But remember, President Biden has, is the first president to not meet with the president of China in his first year in office for mm -hmm. quite some time. And I now know that they're going to be meeting uh, not too long from now for the first time uh, when uh, President Xi finally leaves China. He hasn't left in three years, but I think he'll be meeting with President Biden in Asia not too long from now. But relations between the two countries have gotten worse and worse over the last several years. The relationship is very poor right now. There's no doubt about it. Um, it can't get much worse, uh, short of something uh, happening in Taiwan that's more significant than what we've already had. Uh, but I think it will get better. We have a good ambassador now for the first time. Nick Burns is there. And I do think that Chinese do not want to go to a war with the United States. They have enough other challenges. So I think the relationship will get better. But right now, it's, it's got some real challenges for sure. There's been an implosion in the property market in China, the real estate sector, which is huge, a force in the Chinese economy. There's a, a recession in Europe, basically, with an energy crisis going on. Where are the best opportunities? I mean, are you, are you taking a look at all of these distresses and saying, those are places right. we want to be? Well, whenever uh, markets go down, uh, the most common mistake investors make is they get out. That's the most common mistake that people do. When markets are going up, they get in, and the markets go down, they get out. They, what you should do is the reverse. So when if, if Europe is, goes into a recession, it looks like it's not far from it, uh, probably it's a good time to buy things because prices are depressed. So I don't think people should be that worried about it. Obviously, prices will come back in time, as they always do. You use Europe as an example. Do you, are you investing in Europe right now? Are you... Well, Carlisle is a large investor in Europe, and we've had a big presence here for some time, and we have uh, a lot of activity going on now. So we wouldn't say that, that Europe is a place you should avoid investing in. It's, you just got to recognize that prices probably have to be lower than you would going to pay a year or so ago. Yeah. I, I read a report this morning that suggested that 
millions of Britons are going to be brought into the poverty level because of the increases in inflation, especially when it comes to energy prices. Um, the government is going to have to step up with tens of billions of pounds in order to prevent. It's, it's very interesting. Uh, many people I ask in Britain is, what would the vote be today if you had a vote on Brexit? Yeah. And most people say it would be roughly the same even though almost everybody in Britain feels that it has hurt Britain, its economy. If Britain hadn't gone forward with Brexit, I think Britain would be in better shape now, but you, you're not going to get a change in the British policy for some time, and Brexit is here to stay. But I, I think some of the problems you just alluded to are problems I think to some extent are caused by Brexit. Although inflation is pretty horrible on the continent, too. A lot of this is just energy, natural gas, and how beholden they've been to Putin. Well, we've underestimated in the West the ability to uh, get Mr. Putin to do things that we want him to do. Uh, we thought the, uh, the sanctions would have a big impact. It hasn't been the case. We thought our um, taking away some of their energy um, usage from Europe would, uh, would affect his ability to, to pay for the war. But it turns out that he's making more money than he ever made before because energy prices are so much higher that he's actually in pretty good shape relative to financing the war. So Europe... Um, has not been able to figure out how to deal with Putin yet, and clearly the, Germany has very dependent on natural gas from, uh, from Russia, and it hasn't really changed. So Europe has got to make a transition from dependence on Russian gas to other kinds of sources, and that's going to take some time. Are you, um, in terms of fundraising and people's willingness to give to private equity, what are you finding right now in terms of investor appetite, and, and are you feeling like you are on the precipice of a great investing opportunity, seeing that it looks like we are in a period of simultaneous tightening around the world uh, and potentially simultaneous recession around, uh, you know, in many developed countries. Well, remember, um, the greatest fortunes are often made in the investment world when think people mm -hmm. see prices are down, people run away, and then you can buy things cheaply. Uh, the fundraising market now is a little challenge for all people in private equity because people are coming back for um, new funds more quickly than they used to. It used to be you'd come back like in a presidential campaign every four years, you come back and you're nice to your investors, you're nice to your voters. Now people are coming back after one or two years because they're investing much more rapidly and therefore the big investors don't have quite as much money as they used to have. But it's not a, the biggest problem in the world. So is that a yes in terms of sitting, sitting on the precipice of a great investing opportunity? Because things are, are right. going to come down more, right? I mean, is that the view? When you, if you try to wait for the market to go to the bottom and you hit the bottom and, it, and the bell goes off and says, this is the bottom <laughs> of the market, you're never going to invest. You're never going to time the top or the bottom of the market exquisitely well. So if you know what you're doing and you're comfortable in your analysis, you know, if you miss the bottom of the market by 10%, it doesn't really make that much difference. But did June 16th feel like a bottom to you or near a bottom? Uh, Probably so, but you never know uh, when the bottom is going to occur. There could be some other events happening in Washington, D.C. or something. So I don't really worry about the bottom or the top. If you know what you're doing and you've done the analysis in time, if you, you, know, you can't just make these investments in private equity and hope that they're going to exit them in six months or three months. These are five-year-plus investments, so we tend to look at things differently than traders. Is the hiring market as strong as it has been? Is it starting to turn? Because you have so many businesses that you can see the, the line on. It's tough to get people to go to work these days, both to show up in the office. That's another <laughs> big challenge. I don't know how you're doing it, but uh, uh, many people... I how go about in, Carlisle? Are you well, all back I, to the I, office? I, well, we're, we want people to be back in the office, but when I walk through the offices, you don't see as many people there as you used to see. And it's true of other firms I've talked to as well. People aren't coming back as much as we might would like them to come back. I think they will in time, but right now people are staying home and working remotely. What sectors or industries do you see the greatest opportunity right now? Well, healthcare is one of them. When I worked in the White House under President Carter, I think before either of you were born, um, uh, at that time, 
uh, the GDP of the United States that voted health care was roughly 7%. Now it's about 21, 22%. So it's a gigantic opportunity. And as we all age, uh, we need more health care. And more people have more expectations of better health care than they did 10 or 20, 30 years ago. That's a big sector. And the next, next one is fintech or, and, and crypto-related kinds of things, all things related to making it easier for you to pay for things, get money, borrow money, and so forth. That's another gigantic area in my view. You, you point out that we've gone from 7% of GDP to 21% right. of GDP when it comes to health care. Amazon just announced it's getting out of its health care issues. We've seen J.P. Morgan, Amazon, and Berkshire say, forget it, we can't fix this mess. Is there any chance we're ever going to get control of health care costs? Well, Amazon got out of that particular health care thing. They bought another um, health care company recently, and they're going to stay in health care because they realize it's an important part of American economy. It, it's interesting. When people get wealthier, what do they say? I, I'm having a good life, I want to live longer. Well, how do you live longer? Well, you eat better, exercise more, and get better medical treatment. So as people around the world get wealthier, they want to live longer, and you're going to see more and more money going to healthcare, not just in the United States, but around the world. You know what else people do when they get wealthy and they look around? They think, I want to buy a sports team. Are you going to buy the Baltimore <laughs> Orioles? Are you going to buy the Washington Nationals? There's no doubt that uh, uh, I feel that I'm one of the few people in private equity that doesn't own a sports team. All my <laughs> My friends in, uh, bought sports teams, and I said, look, your investors are not going to take you seriously by your diverting your attention to the sports teams. But I was wrong. They, they did well when they were in their private equity investments, and the sports teams did well. So I, I've looked at it. I, I'm from Baltimore, as you may know, and um, I live in the, the nation's capital, so I'm interested in sports. But, you know, in, in my view, I, I should have been a better player than I was. I, I peaked at six or seven years old. At, at five or six, I thought I was going to be a professional baseball player, and then I realized at seven or eight that I just wasn't good enough. So peer pressure notwithstanding, I mean, are sports teams a good value right now, in your view? I mean, just the pure investment standpoint of it, and then, and then of course, there's the okay. ego standpoint of it. Um, <laughs> it's very difficult to buy a sports team and lose money. Um, it's, some people have done it, but it's very rare. Um, generally, you make in baseball and basketball, you make your money when you sell the team. In NFL, uh, you make your money all the time because it's so profitable. But in baseball, you tend to make your money when you sell the team. But some of the teams have gone up in value dramatically. For example, the Red Sox were bought 20 years ago by uh, two individuals, and they've made a great fortune on paper. They're not going to sell, mm -hmm. but it's a, it's a very valuable property, and they're now using it to do what I think is going to happen in the future. You're going to see baseball teams, basketball teams, and others combine in one company, and ultimately those companies will go public. And you're going to see more and more of that, these are called platform deals. And people are buying uh, soccer teams in England and their baseball teams and basketball teams, combining them all together, and those companies will go public, which has not been happening before, but it will happen in the next couple of years. So this is a profit-making potential enterprise if you were to get into the Major League Baseball, not something where I think of you as buying the Magna Carta or <laughs> fixing some uh, other piece of Americana. Uh, it's not the highest profitability thing I hope to be doing in my investment career, but, but I do think that it's not something I'm doing to lose money, uh, but if, if I do it, but I, I do think it, it's profitable, but it's, it's down the road. It takes a long time to make money because these, these baseball teams, they don't make as much money as you might expect, and they make their money upon the sale, and there are a lot of challenges in baseball. The, the sport is, uh, has some challenges that football doesn't have, for example, the aging population that attends the games. 
Would you be interested in, in creating and patching together this sort of platform over time? Because it sounds like you put a lot of, of thought into it. And, and, and it's interesting because this is at a time when sports rights, like the, yeah. the rights to broadcast, et cetera, they're very high. There are so many customers who want these sports rights. Well, they want them because uh, right now, of the 50 most watched TV shows, other than this show, um, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> um, I think 48 of them were, were sports shows because people love to watch sports and they can see the, the action mm -hmm. live. And so I think it's a, it's a good thing in the future. Now, uh, I can't say exactly what I'm going to do, but I would say what I just talked about is going to happen. You'll see a number of teams going public where they'll have two or three teams packaged together in, in so-called platform deals. So who are you talking to? Ted Leonsis? I'm trying to think of other people in Washington who you might be friends with, who you might be talking <laughs> about combining things with. He's got well, the Washington Capitals, the Wizards. Yeah, Ted Leonsis is a very talented business person. He's owned the Caps and the Wizards for roughly 20 years, and I know him quite well. And and uh, it's been reported in the press that I, I do know him, so um, he's a smart guy. So that's not a no, but not you know, a yes. What's your next question? My next question is, we're going to leave it there. Dave, okay. I want to right. thank okay. you very much for coming in today. And by My the pleasure. way, want to repeat the book that we got to talk about in the last segment, too. It's called How to Invest, Masters on the Craft. It's coming out next month. And you've seen investing books before. These are people like Larry Fink, Ron Barron, Sam Zell, Mary Erdos, people we know well, great investors. But you haven't seen him interviewed by a great investor himself, David Rubenstein. And that's what you're going to get in this book that comes out next month. But David, I want to thank you for coming in. It's my pleasure. Really thank great you. Great to see you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Okay. You sure do want to talk about uh, Ted Leonsis? <laughs> you're a part of the concert. One I last just chance. Made that up. I just I'm happy to it. be here and to bring some affirmative action to the show today. <laughs> This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. And that's Squawk Pod for today on this quiet, hopefully, holiday week. Thank you for spending time with us. On television, every morning, Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Check it out starting at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, follow Squawk Pod wherever you listen. This podcast is produced by me, Katie Kramer, Cameron Costa, and Caroline Rahotis. John Lazration is our editor. Happy December 26th, and we will meet you right back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.